the Gospel of John, chapter 19, page 1073. We continue to look at the story of Jesus, and as our study through the Gospel of John synchronizes with Holy Week, two weeks ago we looked at the arrest of Jesus. Last week we looked at the trial and conviction of Jesus. This week we look at the execution of Jesus. And next week, the victory of Jesus. But today we look at the hard story of Christ's final hours on the cross. John chapter 19, verses 16 through 37. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here, they crucified him. And with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge on it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another Scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. I suspect many of us here have been to uh, a 3D movie at some point. Uh, 3D movies have come a long way since I was little. We used to have those 
boxy kind of paper glasses with the red you know, cellophane and the blue cellophane. And now the, the glasses are much more cool looking and the 3D technology is better. But um, for whatever reason, whenever I watch a 3D movie, at some point during the movie, I have this irresistible impulse where I have to take my glasses off and see what it looks like without the glasses. And that's usually fairly short-lived because it, it looks terrible. It's, it's grainy. It's fuzzy. It, you know, if you look at it long enough, it might give you a headache. It's, it's hard to stare at. There's these kind of weird outlines of different colors around everything. And so you look at it for a minute and you think, and you put the glasses back on. And immediately, the, the picture becomes clear and crisp and three-dimensional. And, and then there are these points in the movie where they, they plan for things to sort of come out of the screen at you. And suddenly you'll find a, you know, a bird flying in front of your face. It leaps off the screen and it seems like it's right there. When I read the story of the crucifixion of Jesus, it's kind of like looking at a 3D movie without any glasses on. It's hard to look at. It's grainy and painful and disorienting and, and dislocating mentally. It's, it's not a fun thing to read. You know, we, we often talk about the cross. We sing about the cross. Pastors go on about the cross. I try to bring the cross into every sermon I preach as, as in an attempt to preach the gospel in every text. Uh, little kids go to Sunday school and they learn the answer. You know, Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins. And it just kind of rolls off the tongue easily for little kids. We, uh, we hang crosses in our buildings. We hang crosses from our earlobes. We hang crosses around our necks. But then you, every once in a while, read the actual story of the cross. And it's, it's not so much a piece of art. It, it's striking. You know, this is a sadistic form of execution. And I I read that and I think, wow, I I don't think I want to read that again. Maybe I'll wait till next Easter before I do. The the story of the cross is hard to read, I think, for at least two reasons. Uh, Kind of probably maybe more than that, but at least two reasons I'd like to point out that makes this a difficult story to walk through. One is is at a kind of a visceral, emotional level. It's like I said, it's it's a horrible, brutal, gory story. There's nothing pretty about this story. Uh, You know, we're reminded what a a terrible form of execution and capital punishment crucifixion was. Uh, You know, you look at verse 16, the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross, he went to the place of the skull. Verse 18, here they crucified him. You know, we know from history that crucifixion was a terrible form of execution. A person who was going to be crucified was first scourged, which was to be whipped and whipped until the you know, the, the flesh was coming off of your body and, and you're bleeding. And then you were to take your cross if you could bear it. And, and when, you, when they carried their cross, you know, think about a cross. Really, it's just that cross piece, the horizontal piece, not the vertical piece. And the, the uh, sentenced criminal would carry his uh, cross piece to the place of execution where there would be vertical poles that had been kind of permanently stuck into the ground. And then they would strip the victim naked they would make him lie down with his hands on the horizontal piece where the hands would either be nailed or tied or both. And then they would hoist the victim up on and, and hoist that cross piece up onto the vertical piece and it would slot down onto it. And then to, they'd take the legs and they'd either tie them to the vertical piece or they'd nail them and tie them or some other form of affixing the person. And then they left them until they died. 
and that could take a while. A person who died of crucifixion would often die of a sort of a constellation of sufferings. There was dehydration, exposure to the elements, blood loss, shock. Ultimately, you know, people trying to reconstruct crucifixion and what we know of it historically, it seemed that most people died of, of asphyxiation because as a person sort of hung there on the cross, the, the, the chest muscles and the upper body muscles that, that you use for breathing and the diaphragmatic muscles would become exhausted. From, from just the strain of, of kind of holding yourself together there in that position with nails in your wrists and the, the pain of, of pulling down on that. And, and so a, a person who was uh, crucified would uh, sort of push up with the legs to catch a breath and then go back down. And, and over time, as, as your upper body became exhausted, that, that motion, the, the, those constant tiny little pull-ups over and over would exhaust you and, and you'd become, it'd become harder and harder to breathe, which would accelerate exhaustion you know, uh, I've, as a pastor, I've talked to dying people, and they say, I've heard people say to me, you know, pastor, I'm not afraid of death, but I'm not looking forward to dying. And so what crucifixion did is it took dying, and it extended it over days. So take that, that dying process that we all kind of dread, and extending it for days, potentially, as a person sort of died agonizingly in slow motion. And so this is a horrible thing to look at. And as if that weren't bad enough, the crucifixion itself, there's the shame and the humiliation that we see written in this text about crucifixion. It's not like you went and were crucified and died in your own private hospital room. You know, you're, you know they, they crucified people in public. If, if the Romans were in charge of the South Shore today and the Romans were crucifying people today, you would see vertical poles at Queen Anne's Corner. You would see them uh, at Downtown Crossing. They would be at uh, the Derby Shops. That's where they would do it. Someplace where everybody could see you know, who had dared transgress Rome's authority and therefore who was being put in their place through crucifixion. And so there was a sign above his head, the King of the Jews... You know, Pilate's last jab at Jesus and his last jab at the Jewish people whom he loved so dearly. And in front of Jesus, the passers-by witnessing this. And at the feet of Jesus, the, the soldiers gambling for his clothing. And, you know, think about this. It's like even as they're, you know, nailing him to this cross, they're probably looking at his clothes thinking, ooh, I'd like that and I want to try to get that. You know, it's almost like their tip for, for being good executioners or something. It's, it's so... Um, dishonoring. It's, it's so disrespectful to Christ. And then you have the gut-wrenching scene between Jesus and his mom in verses 25 to 27. Here's Jesus, looks down, his mom's standing there. I mean, that's just ugh, emotionally painful. And as the eldest son, presumably Joseph is, has deceased, so the eldest son has to take care of his mother. So he sees the beloved disciple, who most commentators agree is John, the gospel writer, there next to Mary, his mother, and the other ladies. And so he says, this is no, your new son. This is your new mom. And so he's done his sonly duty, kind of taking care of his mother. I mean, it's a heart-wrenching moment where Jesus speaks not as the Son of God, not as the King of Kings, but just as a son taking care of his mother and saying goodbye. And then... The, the dehydration, give me a drink. In those final words, it is finished. On Thursday night during a Monday Thursday service, we're going to look at those three words. It is finished. You think, well, good, that's done. No. <laughs> it's even after he's dead. 
Look what they're doing to these poor men. They, the, the, uh, the Jewish leaders don't want the bodies on the cross during the Sabbath. They, they don't want to desecrate the land, and especially during Passover. So they say, bring the bodies down, speed up the death process. So what the Romans would do is the Roman soldiers would take a, you know, a club or an axe or a, a sledgehammer and smash the shin bones of the people on the cross. Because remember, part of the way you kept yourself alive was by pushing up using the tension in your legs to pull up momentarily. But without that there, obviously, the death process will accelerate. So that's how they put the gas on death was to smash the leg bones. But they come to Jesus' body and these experts in death look at him and say, he think he's dead. Well, let's make sure. So they thrust a spear into his side like he's some kind of you know, frog in a formaldehyde jar in a bio lab class, just jabbing him and poking him, and the blood comes gushing out. It's a horrible, grisly scene. And so it's a hard story to read. It's, it's one that's brutal. It's grisly, barbaric. It's, it, it, you know, we have a hard time imagining that this was the common practice in those days and trying to envision that. But I'd like to also suggest that it's a difficult story to read for a second reason. One is the kind of visceral ugliness of the events in the story. But there's another reason I think this story is hard to read. It's, that it's like 3D without glasses. It, and that is at a kind of, I don't know, I'm trying to think of what to call this, but sort of at a theological level, it's hard to read. Because frankly, we don't like thinking about our Lord reaching the climax of his life in such a terrible way. It doesn't, can you, you know the dislocation here? He's the king, he's the savior, he's awesome. Believe in him, be saved. All right, who is he? He's that guy in that cross. And when you really take time to read the story and not just say Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but you really read about it, suddenly believing in him and trusting him and honoring him seems very much at odds with the picture of the suffering savior. Think about John, you know, he's writing this gospel with the primary purpose, John's major goal is so that everyone who reads this gospel would believe in Jesus and have eternal life. That's John's goal. He lays it out there plainly at the end of the book. He says it right there in verse 35. You see verse 35? I'm testifying to these things, talking about himself. He's testifying to all this, verse 35, so that you also may believe. So John's goal in telling us this horrible scene is to to inspire faith in Christ in our hearts. But now, all right, so okay, all right, John, I got it. So now you're going to go to your Jewish neighbors and you're going to say the Messiah came. Oh, really? Yeah, he died on a cross. And your Jewish neighbors are going to say, no, the Messiah, you know, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. That's not how the Messiah comes. You're kidding me. And then, he's, then John's going to go to his Greek and Roman neighbors and say, hey, the king of kings is here. The Caesar of Caesars is here. You should believe in him and follow him. Oh, really? Who's that? Well, he died on a cross. And then the, the Roman neighbors going to be like, ah, that was a good one. You had me for a second. But crucifixion was the slave's punishment. That's what the Romans called it, the slave's punishment. The slave, the lowest person, Caesar, the highest person. And you're telling me the Caesar of Caesars, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords was crucified. That was funny. You almost had me. Ha ha. So it's a stumbling block to Jews. It's foolishness to the Gentiles, to the Greeks and Romans. But I think if we really look at Christ as the suffering Savior, I think there's even a disconnect for us as Americans 
Because in America, we like winners. We don't really care that much about losers. We like the success stories. We like the people who overcome and innovate and triumph. That's part of the American um, worldview that we own. We, we like the people who win the championship and who make the fortune and go from rags to riches, not riches to rags. We, we, that's the people we appreciate. And so we're supposed to go to our fellow Americans and say, you know, if you want to have eternal life, if, if you want to know God, there's Jesus. Oh, yeah? Who, tell me about him again. He was on a cross. He died. He lost. He got beat. Everything was against him. And in the end, he had nothing. What? Come on. It's not how, it's not how winners are. I even wonder if to some extent we as Christians are even a little bit embarrassed about this Jesus and presenting him to the world. Sort of like we, we kind of hold the crucifixion story back or we go over it quickly, but we don't want people to know what a failure Jesus was in the end. And instead, we, we kind of put forward other more successful figures. Have you ever noticed this weird Christian tendency? I've, I've fallen into it too. To kind of latch on to successful people who claim to be Christians. You know, like sports hero, successful business person, movie star, uh, brilliant astrophysicist, uh, writer, um, or, or somebody like that, music star, and they come out and say something vague like, well, you know, I think there may be a God. And we're like, see? See? You know? And Tim Tebow does his thing, and we're like, see? Tim Tebow. He's awesome and a Christian. You can be a winner and be a Christian. See? Like, like that's how we're going to promote the faith is by trying to attach the gospel to successful people. And please don't misunderstand. Tim Tebow, great. If you're successful, if God's given you success, great. It's not about success or not success. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about us and how we feel this need to take successful people and valorize them and elevate them and put them on the proverbial pedestal and say, see, see, we Christians, we're not illegitimate. We're not marginal. We're not the freaks you think we are, even though we don't believe what the culture believes or follow the ways of the culture. But we're not at the margins. We're mainstream. We're legit. And maybe we'll talk about Jesus, but maybe you come into the church for three, four, ten years, and then we'll get to that part of the story. But you look at the story of Jesus, and in this moment, he has no legitimacy. He has zero cultural capital. There is nothing about him that would, we would look to and say, well, at least he had that going for him. It is a scene of utter failure, utter rejection, all alone, cursed, dying, broken. It's hard to look at. And we don't quite know what to do with this kind of a loser and this kind of a defeated person. So what do you do when you're in a 3D movie and you're looking at the screen and it's hard to look at and you're starting to get a headache? What, what do you do? What, do you, what should you do in that moment? Put your glasses back on. <laughs> you know, you're meant to see this with a certain pair of glasses. You know, where do I get my glasses? Well, it's, they hand them to you when you go to the movie. They go, hey, here's your ticket, here's your glasses. John gave us the glasses. 
They're right there if we'll put the glasses on. And when we do, what we see is that this story that is so ugly and so um, surprisingly ironic and upside down is that the story, it becomes clear, it, it has depth, it has all kinds of meaning to it, and not only that, it leaps out and it grabs you. And it touches your heart and your mind. So what I want to do is, I just want to show you the glasses. And John puts the glasses right in the story. It's a repeated phrase he uses. These are the glasses. It's in verse 24. When they're dividing the clothes. And they say, let's not tear it. Let's gamble for it. And John says, this happened that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Verse 28. Later, now, later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Verse 36, end of the story. These things happened so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Verse 37, and as another Scripture says. And so the lens for rightly seeing the Scripture is the Scripture. That God is the one who tells us what God is talking about. God is the one who explains to us what God was doing. What is God doing here? This makes no sense. It is so crazy. It's so painful to look at. And, and so we need God to tell us what God means. Without Scripture helping us understand Scripture, it's just, you know, it's this crazy story. It ends in a terrible way. It doesn't make any sense. You know, it's like the end of Downton Abbey Season 3, for those of you who have seen it. You know, no spoiler, spoiler alert, you know, that one of the main characters just dies randomly at the end of season three. It's just like, done. I'm like, okay, whatever. Why did that happen? I don't know. Is that what this story is? Main character reaches his climax, done, he's dead. Oh, okay, whatever. No, no, no. There's something going on in this story where, where there's... There's a meaning behind it. And so what I want to do is I want to put on the Scripture glasses with you. And there's, there are at least, at least six different Old Testament texts behind this text. I don't want to look at them all. I do, but I don't have time. Um, I want to look at three of them with you. One of them we'll take a while to look at, and the other two we'll just kind of look at more quickly. But, but just to kind of walk you through it quickly here, I want to look at three Scriptures. I want to put on the Old Testament glasses with you and let us understand what God was doing in this story and not only watch it come alive, but I pray by God's grace that it would leap out and it would touch our hearts. So here's the first one. Glasses number one. It's there in verse 24. Let's look at that first one where they divided his clothes and then gambled for that one piece of garment. And John says in verse 24, this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. That's a quotation from Psalm 22. So what I want you to do is take a bookmark, put it in John 19, use a pencil, use a bulletin, take your neighbor's finger, whatever, put it in there, and turn to Psalm 22, which is on page 543 in the Pew Bible. Psalm 22, page 543. All right, so... Super quick summary of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written by King David. King David had been anointed king, if you know the story of King David in the Old Testament. But there was a a time lapse between when he was king, anointed king, and when he actually became king. And in the meantime, 
there was another king, King Saul. And King Saul was not very happy that David was the new chosen king. David was really good to Saul. David didn't get anointed king and say, oh, I guess I'm the king now. I'll stage a coup d'etat and and I'll take over as king. He didn't do that. He just patiently, he was very patient, and he waited all those years until God said, now it's time for you to be the king. But in the meantime, Saul, during that intervening period, he mercilessly hounded David, tried to kill David on a couple of occasions, hunted him down. A lot of that period, David uh, lived in the desert as a fugitive, being hunted by Saul. And so it was a really tough, tough stretch. David had a couple opportunities to assassinate Saul. And both times he passed on them. And he said, that would not please God. I'm not going not to kill the king. You know, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. Uh, so, so he trusted God. And so there was this really difficult period before David finally got to sit on the throne where he was suffering. And this psalm, Psalm 22, was written during that difficult period. It was one of the times when David was on the run from Saul and and he just felt like God had left him. He was like, God, you know, it's like you made me king, and then I'm getting hunted around the desert like a fugitive. And, and he's just crying out in Psalm 22, God, why, what are you doing? Why is this happening to me? Have you ever prayed one of those prayers? Maybe you're all too spiritual. But some of us have prayed these prayers. God, what are you doing? Why, why is this happening to me? Why is it taking so long? I don't understand. I thought you chose me. And now I'm doing... This is no sense. We call these psalms laments. There's a lot of them in the psalms, which tells you something about the life of faith. But let me just read how David is expressing the pain and the agony that he's in. Look at verse 12 of Psalm 22. Just give you a little snippet. Here's David... Just imagine these, these forces of King Saul coming against him. And he says in verse 12, Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Can you imagine the, the troops of Saul hunting him down and he feels encircled? Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. Here's how he feels. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. He's thirsty and tired and pain and weak. You lay me down in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Any light bulbs? Light bulbs. That's Jesus' story. The people around him, they're trying to kill him. He's, you know, quailing inside. His heart is is turning to wax. His mouth is dry. His bones are out of joint. They've pierced his hands and his feet. They gloat over him. Maybe even, I don't know, counting the bones. None are lost. All the bones are preserved. They divide my garments among them. I mean, it's, you know, no wonder the New Testament writers look back at Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 ends up being the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Because they keep looking back at it going, I cannot believe it. Wow. And maybe another reason they quote Psalm 22 It's because Jesus himself pointed us to it. Look at Psalm 22, verse 1. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The words of Christ on the cross. So Jesus points us back to this. And now, put these glasses on. Put on Psalm 22. Turn back to John 19. And what do you see? Some pathetic loser? No, you say, this isn't. This is King David 2.0. This is King David, the repeat. Oh, Jesus is walking in the footsteps of David. Well, actually, maybe it's that David prefigured the footsteps of Jesus. So Jesus is the suffering king. He's the innocent sufferer. And this isn't going to be the end of the story. Because just as King David had to go through trials before he had his triumph, and just for the, there's a cross before the crown, there's suffering before sovereignty. There is this path of trial before finally there's victory. There's difficulty before resurrection. And we say he's just walking in the footsteps of King David. No wonder. It's, it's so ironic when it has a sign over it says it says King of the Jews. Exactly. He's King of the Jews. Just like King David. And so now, you know, John can take this gospel and he can say Jesus was crucified and his Jewish neighbors say, no, that's not what happens to the Messiah. And, and uh, you know, John can say, well, no, actually it is. Remember King David? He went through suffering and rejection before he received his kingdom. He's just following the footsteps of David. And he can even say to us, no, 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 this is a story of victory after trial and after rejection. You know, I, I was trying to think of an analogy today. Um, you know, maybe it's like, you know, that movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe, where he is chosen to be the next Caesar but before that can come to fruition, he's sold into slavery and he becomes a gladiator. And only at the end does he rise and conquer and, and finally reach his zenith and is vindicated. And so that there's something about, it's that kind of story, a sort of a comic plot where it goes bad first and then turns out good in the end. But it's not only that. It's not just that it, the details become clear and we go, oh, I see it, I see it, when we put the glasses on. But it also leaps out at us. And it comes into our lives. Because what we see here is not only an understanding of what Jesus was doing on the cross, that he really was the king, the innocent sufferer like David, but we also see, as Christians, a paradigm for how we exist in this world. This is now our model for how to deal with suffering, persecution, marginalization, misunderstanding in the world for Christ. Turn really quickly to the New Testament book of 1 Peter. Put a bookmark here in John. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2, page 1201. 1 Peter chapter 2, page 1201. This is uh, the Apostle Peter, chapter 2, verse 18. Peter's writing in this little bit here to slaves the lowest of the low in Roman society. What do you do if you're a slave in the Roman society and then you become a Christian? What are you supposed to do? And you can't get free yet. Well, this is what he says, 1 Peter 2.18. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? 
But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. So what Christ did on the cross becomes a paradigm for how we deal with the dissonance of being followers of the kingdom of God while living in the kingdom of this world. So, so as we go through this world and we find ourselves because of our moral stances increasingly at the fringe, we find ourselves because of our belief in Christ and Christ alone as the Savior, we find ourselves increasingly distanced and, and marginalized. When you find yourself at school so on the social outside because you won't do what the social insiders do, when you find yourself at work somehow at the periphery because you don't share the values or, or the you know, the language or, or the, the behaviors of the people on the inside at work. You, you know, the, the idea is not to somehow make yourself look legitimate and force yourself back in. It's just to say, I'm going to suffer for doing good. This is commendable before God. To this you were called, verse 21, and here it is, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When they suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Wow, what a difference the glasses can make. Suddenly, the, the death of Jesus, his crucifixion, is not some tragic joke. It's, it's the king. The upside-down king, the not-of-this-world king. And we're following him. We're called to take up our crosses and follow him. And we're called to lose our life so that we can gain it. We have in the sufferings of Jesus an entire template for how we as Christians follow Christ in this life, in this world. Let me show you two other Old Testament texts. I'm going to move quickly on these. But I just want to give you a picture. Look at the very end. Verse 36. These things happen so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. There's another pair of glasses. Not one of his bones will be broken. And uh, there's actually probably three different Old Testament texts that kind of feed into that little quotation and weave together. But, but two of them have to do with Passover. And during the Jewish Passover, the lamb, the Passover lamb that was sacrificed, uh, one of the things about it, one of the rules was in God's law, you're not allowed to break the bones. So, um, you, 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 know, you know the story of Passover. Maybe some of you here grew up in a Jewish family. You're kind of familiar with the Passover story. or Maybe you've learned it in church. But if you haven't, let me just quickly give you the quick overview, the one-minute synopsis of the Passover story. You know, the Passover story is, I, I like to call Passover the, the Good Friday of the Old Testament. And the Red Sea crossing is the Easter Sunday morning of the Old Testament. It's the day when God saved his people. And so in the Old Testament story, here's the people of Israel. They're in bondage in Egypt, and Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, okay, no, okay, no. And so God sends all these plagues on Egypt, and finally the last plague is the death of the firstborn in Egypt. And so God says, I'm going to kill every firstborn in Egypt from the house of the slave all the way to the house of Pharaoh, except people who have the blood of the Passover lamb over their house. And so on Passover Eve, they slaughter the Passover lamb, and they don't break its bones, and they take some hyssop, and they mix it, the blood, and they put it on the door frames of the house. So that night, as, as the judgment of God comes over the land of Egypt, and the, the angel of death, so to speak, flies over Egypt, 
and he's killing the firstborn children. The people who are safe are the people who are under the blood, who are protected by the blood of the Passover lamb. And so you see this beautiful image of the lamb dying so the people could live. The lamb losing its life so that the people inside would not be judged by God's wrath. They're spared because of the sacrifice of the lamb, the unblemished lamb, the unbroken lamb whose bones are not broken. So John now, going back to John 19, he's looking at the fact that Jesus' legs weren't broken and all of these Old Testament images are just going off in his head. I mean, for crying out loud, what day was it when Jesus was crucified? It was Passover. It was He is the Passover lamb. He celebrates it the night before, and because the Jewish day goes from sundown to sundown, he's, it's still Passover. And he dies as the Passover lamb. Not one of his bones is broken. So that now we can hide under the blood of Christ and be saved. You know, there's coming another day when God is going to judge Egypt. This whole world is going to come under the wrath of God. This world is going to end not because of some ecological disaster. This world is not going to end because of some meteorite. It's going to end because Christ is coming back. And the whole world will stand in judgment before Him. And on that day, if you're trying to hide under anything than the blood of Christ, it will be like tissue paper in front of a nuclear blast. It will not protect you. Your accomplishments, your politics, your education, your good deeds... The fact that you've rescued three dogs or drive a Prius or, you know, serve in the community or serve at your church or have a seminary degree. Whatever you think it is that makes you fireproof, think again. The judgment of God is coming. But there is one thing that extinguishes His judgment. It is the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. So we hide under the blood of Christ alone. And we cling to Him as our Passover lamb. We look forward to that day. Suddenly, this story is not just a horrible story. It's the most wonderful story when you realize what is coming. So how do we hide under the blood of the Lamb? How do you, how do you put the blood over your doorposts? I'm not saying you should go home and put blood at your house. Like, so what do you do? How do you actually do this? And the answer is you have to come to Jesus. You have to believe in Jesus And you've got to turn away from your sins. You've got to do what John says in verse 35. Believe. You've got to do what it says in verse 37. And another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Here's our last text. Put your bookmark here. Actually, you don't even need to. Just turn to Zechariah chapter 12. And let's get a little picture of how it is that we... The blood is applied to our lives. Zechariah chapter 12. Gold star if you can find it. Page 946 in the Pew Bibles. He's an Old Testament prophet. And he's looking forward to a day when God's people will be grieving for something they've done. Look at Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10. Page uh, 946. Here's the prophecy. God says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. People will be crying out to God. 
because God's going to help them cry out to him. They will look on me, who's speaking? God is speaking. They will look on me, God says, the one they have pierced. They've pierced God. How do you pierce God? And they will mourn for, now we go to third person, him. Is it me or is it him? What is going on? As one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Wow. And now to think as they were piercing Christ, they were piercing God. And on that day, verse 11, there will be weeping in Jerusalem. It will be great like the weeping of Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, each clan by itself, or their wives by themselves. The clan of the house of David and their wives, and the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives. And you get the picture. People will be weeping. So there's going to come a day when, when people will see the one they've pierced, God himself, and grieve over the fact that they have pierced him. They'll, they'll be mourning the fact that, that they've done that. And you say, well, it, wow, you know, I, I thought a soldier pierced him. No, the people pierced him. You know, there's an old, uh, tired out, uh, anti-Semitic trope that says that the Jews killed Jesus. That's not true. You say, right, right, it's not true. The Roman soldier killed Jesus. No? My sins killed Jesus. No one could have laid a hand on him if he hadn't let them. He wasn't overpowered. He laid down his life so that he might be pierced by my sins and yours. He was pierced for my hypocrisy and yours. He was pierced by my materialistic greed and yours. He was pierced by by my sin. That's why he was crucified. was because... Of my unbelief and my skepticism and my arrogance and my self-sufficiency and my know-it-allness, my indifference, my love of pleasure. This is why. For my addictions and my sins and yours. And when that moment comes where it's not only, wow, Jesus died to save us from our sins and put us under his blood, but when, when it leaps out at you and you realize your sins pierced him. When that realization comes into your heart and, and the Holy Spirit makes that connection and says, no, it was for your sins that he died, that's when we, we repent and we weep and we, and we believe and we say, Lord Jesus, I am so sorry. My whole life I have rejected you. My whole life I thought I was a good person. I thought I was fine, but I was not living for you. My whole life I haven't lived for your honor. Oh God, you know, is it possible that at this point, I could be saved and changed and I could know you, God. Is it possible after all, this whole rap sheet that I have that there's mercy for somebody like me? And so we weep and we believe. And then chapter 13, verse 1 of Zechariah. On that day, on the day when they weep, on the day when they call out to God, on that day will be opened a fountain pouring forth like the blood from Christ's side. 
on that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the house of the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I pray for all of us, starting with myself, for eyes to see you. I pray, Lord Jesus, for us to see you as the innocent king, the great king. Help us, Lord, to see in your life a pattern for life in this world, to be those who, who live for you, Lord, and, and don't flinch away when we must suffer for it. And God, I just pray that you'd make us more courageous as Christians. Help us to, to give up thinking we're going to be hip enough for the hipsters or smart enough for the smart people or rich enough for the successful people, Lord. But help us just to cling to Jesus and to walk his path and to endure whatever comes our way. Lord, give us courage as a church to take up our crosses and to follow Jesus wherever that cross leads us. Lord, I pray for us that we would see you as the Passover lamb. And Lord, I pray that every person here, including myself, would be found under the blood. And Lord, as we stand under the blood of Christ and put our hope in his sacrifice, Lord, I pray that that we would find peace not only with you, but with one another. God, I pray that this would be a church full of grace and forgiveness and unity because our sins have been forgiven. Lord, just... May the blood of Christ undercut all of our spiritual snobbiness and all of our spiritual self-righteousness and help us, Lord, to forgive each other. I pray that there would be no outstanding debts of unforgiveness in this church, but that, Lord, we'd be quick to forgive. I pray for marriages, quick to forgive. For parents and children at each other's throats, Lord, quick to forgive because we stand under the blood that was shed for us. And Lord, I pray that, that, that we would look on Jesus and that we would mourn and believe to repent but in hope. And I pray, God, that if there's anyone here who has never looked upon Christ, perhaps even this morning, you have given them a spiritual impression of who you are, Jesus. And where there was never faith before, there is suddenly a little pilot light of faith springing up in their hearts. God, I pray as that happens that they would look to Jesus and that you'd forgive them, that they would enter eternal life by faith in him. And so, Lord Jesus, give us eyes to see. Put the glasses on us, Lord. We need your help. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.